0: According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Join me once again in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 9. This is uh, class number 82 in the book of Hebrews, so we're still under, uh, under 10 classes per chapter. About the kind of a pace that I was anticipating, similar to Romans when we taught Romans, it was about ten classes per chapter on average, about one hundred and sixty for a sixteen chapter book. Hebrews is only a thirteen chapter book, so we'll see uh where it ends. Lord willing, rapture pending we'll get through it in uh, about forty more classes, but that's that's God's business All right, Hebrews chapter nine, in contrasting the old covenant with the new covenant and the blessings of uh, what we have here the differences between types and anti-types, shadows and substance, the anticipation and the reality. And this is uh, brought out very clearly in this chapter in some very deep ways, ways that um, folks either they don't want to pay attention to, or if they do pay attention to, they realize, whoa, wait a minute, that's that's significant, and they back off. And I find that curious to me uh, why they would back off. The truth is the truth. So don't back off with it, just embrace it and uh, realize there is a glory being revealed here that we should be thrilled with. And you'll see what I mean as we talk about it here in verse uh, 11, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation." So he didn't go into the earthly replica. He didn't go into Solomon's temple. The veil of that temple was written too, but he didn't go in there. There was nothing to do in there. He had no purpose in there. Wouldn't even be been qualified to stand in there anyway. But he went to heaven and he cleansed the heavenly temple. And that takes you into some realms and concepts that I think makes people uncomfortable. How could a heavenly temple be defiled? And uh, why would God tolerate a defiled temple in the heavenly places? And uh, that becomes unthinkable in some folks' uh, doctrine or their, their worldview. Uh, and yet so they don't allow themselves to accept the plain language of what this verse talks about. The heavenly temple was defiled. And it was defiled not before by human beings, it was defiled by Satan in his fall. And there's issues there related to Satan and his function as the high priest of the angelic stewardship. And that's... Uh, that gets into some deep things, so put on your thinking cap this morning, <laughs> and we're going to start with prayer. we're going to ask our Father to open the eyes of our understanding and to bless us with this powerful truth. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing we have to study to show ourselves approved and Father, we're not afraid of any verse, any passage, any word. Your truth is your truth, and it's been revealed, it belongs to us now, the things revealed belong to us and our children forever. So Father, we want to study to show ourselves approved, we want to rightly divide the word of truth. We don't want to abuse it or mishandle it, but Father, we are accountable for that which has been given. To whom much is given shall much be required. So Father, we come before you this morning and ask for your wisdom in, uh, in your guidance as we study. Show us what we've been given so we can make the application ap- appropriately. I thank you, Father, and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. And so, last week and the previous weeks, I think we've done well going through uh, up through verse 10. Let me just back up to verse 8 to, uh, to kind of set the stage for today. The Holy Spirit is signifying this. There's a main point getting made, and this is what the Holy Spirit is signifying in everything that leads up to this that the way into the holy place is not yet disclosed while the outer tabernacle still stands. That there is an obstacle. It's not disclosed. It's not seen. It's not accessible. The way into the most holy place is not yet disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. There's a reason why shadows were given. That uh, when at Mount Sinai, when he delivers Israel out of Egypt and he brings them down there, and uh, God gives them the tabernacle, he gives them the law, he's giving them a replica for a reason. He didn't have to, of course. He could have given them something else, he could have given, given them direct access to the heavenly places, but that's not his purpose and that's not why he sent the law. And so these things go together. The fact that law was given at the same time this priesthood was given, it goes together. And so they're operating in shadows, they're operating in, uh, in with visual aids of what the heavenly reality is. And yet all the cleansing they receive is only bodily cleansing, not conscience cleansing. That the, uh, the uh, holiness that they obtain is a ceremonial holiness. They can be ceremonially clean, so they can take part in Passover and Pentecost and trumpets. They can be ceremonially clean in, only in earthly terms to go into an earthly replica and have earthly worship. That's what they were given under Mosaic law. We, however, are given the reality. We are given spiritual access to the heavenly places. We are given uh, complete cleansing. And uh, we'll discuss that as well in, uh, in these verses. And so last week we actually had, if I have the right slide here, is this it? Maybe? In physical terms... The most holy place cannot be seen once the holy place and the veil are constructed. They're blocked from view and they're also blocked from access in just in physical terms. In spiritual terms, not only is the holy place out of sight, the most holy place can't even be seen, it can't, the reality is it can't even be accessed. The heavenly temple, uh, you can see it in the earthly replica, but it cannot be accessed through the earthly replica. All it can do is point ahead to something yet to come something yet to come. And we'll talk about yet to come in verse 11 because when Christ appeared, He appeared as a high priest of the good things yet to come. The good things that were not manifest even after He died and rose again. They're still yet to come in His priestly ministry. While the law is a tutor, we know that from Galatians, we've studied that, the law is a tutor to bring us to Christ. It is also a sin instigator. Romans 7 is a You know The commandment, thou shalt not covet, is a a natural goad that caused Paul, causes all of us, When, when, when there's a thou shalt not command that sparks something in our fallen state that says, hmm, I want to do that, or that sounds like fun, or what happens if I do that? And there's an instigation in every sin based upon the commandment not to do that. And so law is a tutor. Law is also a sin instigator. Thirdly, we understand that the law is also a veil. It is a veil upon their heart. 2 Corinthians 3.15 says, To this very day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. And so law, while it's designed to point to what's coming next, law can also become a um, a, 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 a blankie. <laughs> it can become a comfort blanket. It can become something that a, a, a the religious Jew or a legalist could just wrap themselves up in the law and think, that that's the be-all, end-all. That it's the it's the end rather than the means to an end. And so, by wrapping themselves up in law, they were actually blinded to uh, to the gospel, blinded to the truth. And so, Second Corinthians three, I think, addresses that very well. A symbol for the present time, verse nine. Hope we understand symbology, typology, shadow doctrine. Uh, I think we, we've we taught them around here for years, of course. Uh, I think dispensational theology does a marvelous job, uh, much better than covenant theology or much better than other branches of Christendom, for handling the shadow doctrine, handling typology, handling these these things. They have legitimate functions and benefits, but no eternal perfection. And this gets stated again and again and again. He gave the symbols for a reason, He gave the symbols for a time, typology and shadow doctrine serves a purpose but it's not an eternal purpose. It's only for the meantime until the fulfillment is made known. And so again and again we have it stated here. Hebrews 7 uh, 19, the law made nothing perfect. There you go. If the law was able to make something perfect then Jesus doesn't have to come to this earth and die on the cross. Well, if law makes us perfect, well then just stick with that. Likewise Hebrews nine nine. A symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshipper perfect in conscience. Again, no perfection. And the day of atonement, as great as it is, has to be done over again next year. Year after year, here it comes again Day of Atonement, another reminder of sin. If it was perfect, if they made the worshippers perfect in conscience, it'd be once and for all done, like the death of Christ on the cross. Chapter 10 and verse 1, "'For the law, since it is only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near.'" It's just obvious. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? You know, if it perfected anybody one time, then it's done. It's done what it was should have done. But the fact is, law can't do it. Law can never do it. Law is designed to illustrate that it can't do it, designed to illustrate that nobody measures up, only Jesus fulfills the law so that then we can be ushered into salvation by grace. Anyway, we want to uh, understand these issues here as well. Of course, the blood of Christ, in contrast, supplies eternal perfection. What the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did in sending His Son. Now the requirements of the law might now be fulfilled in us. And the blood of Christ supplies eternal perfection. Hebrews 9.14. How much more will the blood of Christ... And I'll back up a little bit. Verse 13, Hebrews 9.13. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh. You can get a bodily cleansing with an animal ritual. But how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You see the sacrifice of Christ is going to go far beyond what any animal ritual even attempted. And it's going to address not just a bodily cleansing so that you're ceremonially pure to take part in Passover, but that you are actually literally pure, purified by the blood of Jesus Christ. Keep on cleansing you from all sin, whereby sinners can stand before a holy God. Alright, much better in the church age with the reality of Christ's finished work than it ever was in the shadows and typology of Old Testament animal ritual. Chapter 10, verse 10 and verse 14. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. For by one offering He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And so we have the finished work of Jesus Christ and the benefit that it applies to you and to me. The benefit that it applies in the spiritual reality perfected for all time by the blood of Christ. It's what the shadow and the doctrine could not do. And I think it's clear you know we in, in any shadow doctrine in any shadow Bible story when it comes down to it, you know and my some of my favorites include Abraham and Isaac when they walk up on that mountain, and when uh, Abraham lays Isaac out on the altar and takes the knife, all right, and he's willing to slay his son. That is a powerful text that is an amazing development in shadows in typology. That is a marvelous picture of Calvary, of of the cross, of the father willing to sacrifice his son. And in Abraham's case, he didn't have to do it. He was willing to do it, but then God supplied the substitute. God supplied the the, the ram instead, and, and so God will provide, and Isaac was spared. And he didn't have to offer up Isaac because there was a substitute. Now, as glorious as that is, that typology, that shadow doctrine doesn't save you and me. doesn't save any of us. It doesn't accomplish the eternal purpose of God. It is a shadow pointing forward to a fulfillment. And if Jesus Christ doesn't go to the cross, then that shadow is left without a fulfillment. You see what I'm saying? And, that, and so Jesus has to go to the cross. The Father has to put him to death. There is no ram caught in the thicket for Jesus because Jesus is the one and only. And when the Father puts his Son to death, when He inflicts His wrath upon the sin of the world, upon the person of His Son, that accomplishes. That's the reality, not the shadow. And it's the basis of the reality that you and I have eternal life, not the shadow. Alright, so this is, uh, this is useful. And by the way, if you ever want to use this, I've done this repeatedly, I've, I've done this maybe five times uh, with different Muslims over the years. Back when I worked in the jail and other occasions. Muslims have the same story in their Quran. They just change it. They make it Ishmael, <laughs> the, the son that Abraham loved. Because uh, Ishmael is the father of the Arabs, right? And, and so Ishmael is the father. So they change the story that Abraham was willing to sacrifice Ishmael. And so Allah learns that Abraham's a great guy and, and he blesses Abraham and Ishmael. That's the story because they changed it. But they also in the Quran, they changed the cross too. They tell you Jesus didn't die on the cross he only appeared to die on the cross. He didn't die on the cross. He was swapped out for uh, for a murderer, you know, probably just ripping off the story of the Bible related to Barabbas. So Barabbas took his place and died on the cross. But Jesus never died on the cross. Jesus went up to Allah. He went up to heaven. That's what the Quran will teach you. So the Quran bastardizes, twists the first story Bastardizes the second story and fails to recognize they've missed the whole point. Or maybe you know, Satan knows what he's done in, in creating the Quran. But the point is the shadow only has reality so far as the substance fulfills it. That's the point. Alright. And so Jesus has to die on the cross because there is no substitute for Jesus. Now, talk about the bodily functions and then the spiritual functions here in Hebrews 9 and verse 10. We were running out of time last week and in particular, the bodily regulations given to Israel had legitimate functions and benefits, but must not be exchanged for true spirituality. Okay? They had regulations. They could not eat bacon, for example, which I think is horrible. But then again, I'm happy to be a church age believer, and I can eat bacon and pork chops and whatever else, And, uh, and I'm not under law, and, and there you have it. And it was a legitimate function. It served to set them apart. They were a covenant people. They were holy to God. They were different than all the Gentile nations around them. As far as what's the intrinsic spiritual value to not eating bacon? What's the intrinsic spiritual value to not eating any of the things that you know that were forbidden? Um, nothing really. Not intrinsically, not in and of itself. The whole point was that by observing law, they were demonstrating their place as a covenant people. And they were portraying in shadows and types, they were portraying that a holy people operates differently than an unholy people. That a people dedicated to the Lord God follows that Lord God and His requirements of righteousness. See, And you don't confuse the the standard with the reality. He cannot exchange legalism for true spirituality. No Jewish person was ever made holy by not eating bacon. But he walked the walk of holiness, he was experientially sanctified based upon his devotion to the Lord God. You see the difference? So don't confuse um, bodily regulations, don't confuse rules and do's and don'ts with true spirituality. Colossians 2, I think, spells this out in a very vivid way. If you know anybody that's trying to make rules and and call that spirituality, just point them to Colossians 2 and say, I like your man-made rule there. Not really, but your man-made rule there is of no value. Talking about do not taste, do not touch, do not handle. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why? As if you were living in the world... Do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? You realize that? We don't live in the world. We just abide here as pilgrims. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence no value against fleshly indulgence. In fact uh, rigid legalistic asceticism does not save you from your sin nature. It feeds your sin nature in a a twisted way whereby you get very prideful about how good you are as a a legalistic ascetic type believer. No value against fleshly indulgence. Do not confuse uh, shadow ritual with uh, legitimate true spirituality. Likewise Hebrews 13 verses 9 and 10 address that. The Aaronic priesthood of Israel's past is going to be reformed in the millennium to the Zadokite priesthood for Israel's future. This is where we ran out of time, and this is where you have to not miss out on this. This is key. Hebrews nine ten. <clears throat> Hebrews nine ten. When we talk about things destined for use, we talk about um, food and drink and various washings. Those were the regulations. They were the righteous things, the dikaiomata, regulations for the Levitical priesthood, for the Aaronic priesthood. They were the regulations. And they were imposed, regulations for the body, imposed until a time of reformation. Now, big mistakes can be made with this, okay? Um, One mistake, well, the obvious one, we're not talking about the Protestant Reformation, Okay. So just because the word Reformation is in there, just don't even give Martin Luther a thought, okay? Or Calvin or any of those guys. We're not talking about the Protestant Reformation. We're talking about the Aaronic Priesthood Reformation. How is it that the Levitical priesthood is going to be reformed? How is it that the regulations are going to be adjusted? Now, the second thing I think is a mistake is assuming that the church makes those adjustments. Okay? Okay? Or that because we're living in the church, we're living in that Reformation. That's not what Hebrews is saying. The time of Reformation is looking forward to the Millennial Kingdom. The time of, We don't change the Jewish priesthood at all. We're a separate priesthood. You and I function in a Melchizedek priesthood. You and I function in a heavenly priesthood with the power of an indestructible life. We are not a reformed Jewish priesthood. We are an entirely different priesthood one that is earlier than the Aaronic priesthood, because remember Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, one that precedes the Aaronic priesthood, one that is superior to the Aaronic priesthood, one that is completely different. The church does not reform the Jewish priesthood. The Jewish priesthood is still waiting its reformation. That reformation will happen in the millennial kingdom. And so we want to be clear on this. When you read Ezekiel 40 through 48, when you read the grand tour that Ezekiel has given of the millennial temple, In the millennial priesthood, in particular, you can focus on chapter 44. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. I figure somebody read Ezekiel 40 through 48 last week. I suggested that it would be useful. But since I am the biggest pessimist in the church, I am skeptical that very many people did so. Um, maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm wrong but I do expect I am the biggest pessimist in this church let's look at Ezekiel 44 and what you're going to see in all these chapters, a temple gets built, offerings are offered there's, there's a priest, they're functioning, animals are dying, there's animal ritual there's also though a gate for the prince as chapter 44 speaks of this Ezekiel teaches a marvelous dynamic between a king and a prince. And there's David, who's called the prince, and then there's Jesus, the greater son of David, who's the king. And there's some glorious things that are found in this book. But just picking up here in verse uh, 15, let's see here. Let me pick up with verse 9. <laughs> All right. Thus, verse 9 says, Thus says the Lord God, No foreigner uncircumcised in heart and uncircumcised in flesh of all the foreigners who are among the sons of Israel shall enter my sanctuary. So everything we're, we're blessed by today in the church age where there's no Jew, no Gentile, we're all one body in Christ that's church age, okay? Don't confuse that with what's going to happen in the millennium. After the rapture this world goes back to a Jew versus Gentile contrast and the Jewish people are the stewards after the rapture of the church. And uh, the uncircumcised Gentiles, uncircumcised in flesh and in heart, will not enter the sanctuary of the Lord. But the Levites, who went far from me when Israel went astray, who went astray from me after their idols, shall bear the punishment for their iniquity. Yet they shall be ministers in my sanctuary, having oversight of the gates of the house and ministering in the house. And so Levites are restored back. They were faithless, absolutely faithless, but they get restored back. And so they shall slaughter the burnt offering and the sacrifice for the people. They shall stand before them to minister to them because they ministered to them before their idols and became a stumbling block of iniquity to the house of Israel. Therefore I have sworn against them, declares the Lord God, that they shall bear the punishment for their iniquity. And so we have some judgment that's appointed here even amongst the Levites and among the priests. Now we get down to verse 15, but the Levitical priests, the sons of Zadok, So there's going to be one particular branch within the larger branch of the Aaron priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood, the faithful line of Zadok. The Levitical priests, the sons of Zadok, who kept charge of my sanctuary when the sons of Israel went astray from me, they shall come near to me to minister to me. They shall stand before me to offer me the fat and the blood, declares the Lord God. They shall enter my sanctuary. They shall come near to my table to minister to me and to keep my charge. This is the time of reformation. This is the future promised reformation of the Levitical priesthood. It is, it, the Aaronic priesthood becomes the Zadokite priesthood. One line, the line of Zadok, He was the faithful high priest during the days of David. The Zadokite priesthood is the reformed Levitical priesthood. And it's waiting in the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. All right? Not the church age, not you and me. We are not a reformed Levitical priesthood. We are a Melchizedek priesthood in the heavenly places in Christ. Any questions on that? I don't. I won't permit you to leave the building until you realize the significance of this. Not only that it's true, but how powerful this is for our priesthood. All right. So that time of reformation—they're waiting for the millennial kingdom. In the meantime, what about us? All right. From verse ten to verse eleven. And really, now there's a change of of context, and, and he leaves that thought just sit there, right? He says, until a time of reformation, and then just drops it. It's just sitting there. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, now the author of Hebrews discusses what Jesus is accomplishing. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. The work that he did was not in the earthly replica. It was not in in, uh, Solomon's temple or the rebuilt uh, Ezra's temple or the rebuilt and remodeled Herod's temple, which was the earthly one on, on earth at that time. He didn't go in there. He entered. He went to heaven. Jesus went to heaven. Multiple times, actually, after the resurrection. We'll talk about that here this morning. When he appeared as a high priest of the good things to come. All right, so we talk about the appearance. The appearance of Jesus Christ. Now, this is a a particular appearance. It's not the, the rapture. It's not the second advent. It's not first advent. This is a separate appearance, all right? The appearance of Jesus Christ as the priest as it says here high priest of the good things to come okay that's not church age that's not that's that's anticipating the reformed levitical priesthood okay it's, it's anticipating the cleansing of the millennial temple he in other words he dies he, he's raised again on the third day he ascends to the father and he doesn't stand there representing the church he stands there representing good things to come, future things. He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. All right, the good things to come. You and I, were already here. We're already in the church age. We're already in the Melchizedek priesthood. The Melchizedek priesthood is not good things to come. The Melchizedek priesthood is good things that already done come and we're here. Okay, big difference. So Jesus Christ ascended to the Father and appeared to him as a high priest of the good things to come. When did he do this? I believe he did this on Sunday, April 5th, 33 AD. Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, if you want to call it that. Resurrection Sunday, after his encounter with Mary Magdalene, but before his encounter with the disciples in the upper room, with the twelve. Jesus Christ ascended to the Father and appeared to him as a high priest of the good things to come. He appeared to him as a future high priest, one that was here now to cleanse this heavenly temple. Now, if you have been with us in the Life of Christ series way back in the day on Wednesday mornings, this is not a newsflash to you. Uh, We had this, we studied this in the resurrection event in the Life of Christ series. Resurrection Sunday, of course, the stone rolled away. Mary was there. The women were there. The body was gone. She's crying. She thinks it's the gardener. (laughs) Let's turn over to John 20. Let's take a look at this. John chapter 20. So if you were with us in the Life of Christ series on Wednesday mornings, you've had this teaching already. If not, then this might come as a shock to you that Jesus Christ had more than one ascension, that when He ascended, ten days before Pentecost, and the disciples were standing there on the Mount of Ascension looking up in the sky like turkeys in the rain, that that was actually the final ascension of, I believe, three. Three ascensions that Jesus made to the heavenly places during His resurrection ministry. All right, John chapter 20. So the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark. And saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So Jesus was crucified on Friday. They observed the Sabbath on Saturday. Sunday morning, before the sun comes up, they're there, ready to anoint the body, ready to attend to, uh, to those details. But the body's gone. The stone is rolled away. At whatever point prior to uh, their arrival, there it was. And uh, so she ran and came to Simon Peter. And to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, that's the Apostle John, younger and faster, and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together. Of course, the old man can't keep up. The other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Simon Peter, huffing and puffing, finally caught up. Followed him and didn't just stop at the door. He actually, Peter style, just barged right in, get in the middle of things. And um, entered the tomb and he saw the linen wrappings lying there. The face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but roll up in a place by itself. That's curious to me. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered and he saw and believed. They did not yet understand the scriptures. All right, so that he had to rise again from the dead. So the disciples then leave and Mary Magdalene is standing outside the tomb weeping. And as she wept, uh, and then she saw two angels in white sitting, one on the head and one on the feet where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, because they've taken away my Lord. and I do not know where they have laid him. And when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. And he said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? He asked her the very same thing that the angels had asked. And um, supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried, away, carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. Now, Greek manuscripts don't communicate tone of voice. And so we don't exactly know. But he said it in such a way that immediately she knew it was him. Just in that in that certain way. However he used to say it or maybe in a very special way between him and her or whatever. At this point though her eyes are open and she knows it's him. So she turned and said in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. So I think he said it in a particular way and then she responded and this is how they addressed one another prior to this, you know, in life, in his ministry. But the point for all of this is to pay attention to verse 17. Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me. All right. Why? Stop clinging to me. Why? Because girls have cooties. (laughs) You know what? (laughs) Don't touch me. All right. No. Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Now, that's a very definite explanation. That has precision. Stop clinging to me. Because he's got somewhere to go. And he's on his way. He only delayed long enough to encourage her. He's on his way right here, right now. I believe in accordance with Hebrews 9 that he is appearing before the Father as a high priest for the good things to come. He says, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. So her mission now is to go to the disciples and tell them that Jesus is alive and Jesus is now ascending to the Father. Why do they need to know that? And why do they need to know that today on Sunday, April 5th when He's actually going to make His final ascension in 40 days? Right? 10 days before Pentecost. And so why tell the disciples today that He's ascending? So Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I've seen the Lord. And he had said these things to her. I saw him and he was on his way to heaven. He was on his way to stand before the Father. So when it was evening on that day, the same day, first day of the week. By the way, this is why it's called the Lord's Day. It's why we, we assemble on Sunday, not Saturday. We're not Seventh-day Sabbath observers. We're first day observers of the Lord's Day. Evening, same day. And when he appears with the disciples, he can be touched. He welcomes them to touch him. He invites them to touch him. Why was it with Mary Magdalene in the morning? It was hands off. I'm on my way to the Father. But in the evening, and then even a week later also with Doubting Thomas, but even this night with, without Doubting Thomas, with the other disciples, it was show and tell. Here, touch this, touch this, feel this. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, peace be with you. I'm not sure if that was teleportation or what that was, how he walked through closed doors, um, some kind of phasing where he walks through walls or just pops in there with a teleport. In any event, if you're in a locked room and someone else shows up, all of a sudden in that room with you, that's, that's freaky, right? That's scary. And so here he is. Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. And the disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So what's that showing all about then in verse 20? Showing. If you take the time to read Luke 24, 39 and 40, it's very clearly touching, feeling, examining his hand, the hole in his side and the pierced holes in his hands and his feet. So why is it in the morning with Mary Magdalene, stop clinging to me, I've not yet ascended my Father. But in the evening, touching was fine. Touch and see, a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Okay? The difference being is that He ascended. In between. He ascended. He told Mary Magdalene, tell them I'm ascending. And He ascends that morning. He ascends to the Father. Now, what would what did He do when He ascended and why did He come back? Well, came back for multiple reasons because there's at least two more ascensions that have to happen. He's going to come back and I believe on the second ascension he comes back and he goes and he fetches those prisoners from Sheol. And he's actually going to bring them out of Sheol and take them to heaven. That would be his second ascension. Some people say that was his first ascension. Which means the temple cleansing is his second ascension. However, whichever way you want to order those two Then the final ascension in Acts chapter 1 is the third and the final ascension, ascension, ten days before Pentecost. In Acts chapter 1 and uh, the disciples say Lord is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? This is after he had a 40 day ministry. Acts three says to these, he presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days, speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. He did a lot in those 40 days. He went, he taught the, the disciples on the Emmaus road. He went to the Mount of Transfiguration or the Mount of the uh, uh, Great Commission. He went, he walked along the beach and gave them a fish breakfast one morning. He did a lot of things in that resurrection ministry. He also ascended twice to the father. This is now going to be his third ascension. Over a period of 40 days, speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God and gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem. Now they had a great commission already. They have to go to the uttermost parts of the earth, but just don't leave town for 10 more days. He said, because the promise of the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. So they say, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the epochs, which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, and even in the remotest parts of the earth. But don't leave without the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Okay? So stay here in Jerusalem for at least 10 more days. Stay here through Pentecost. And after he said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received them out of their sight. And this, I hope this is on video. I want to see this because they were all just standing there looking, you know. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? <laughs> Yep. This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. And so, anyway, they return to Jerusalem and then the day of Pentecost comes ten days later, they get the Holy Spirit and the church age begins. So that's the, the only ascension that is typically taught. That Jesus had one ascension. He was raised on Easter Sunday, forty days later he ascended. I believe the Bible teaches three ascensions. Because there's leading captivity captive and there's cleansing the heavenly temple. And so if you want to mash them all together in the same ascension, that's fine. But I think it's better to differentiate them as three ascensions. And also helping to explain why with Mary it was hands-off, I've not yet ascended to the Father, but with the disciples that night, touch and feel, okay? Touch and feel. Because He ascended to the Father, He had cleansed the heavenly temple, He returned back to earth and was ready for the rest of His resurrection ministry. That's the order. Alright. Jesus' once and for all sacrifice opened and disclosed the greater and more perfect tabernacle once for all. Jesus' once and for all sacrifice opened and disclosed the greater and more perfect tabernacle once for all. I'm trying to keep the vocabulary the way the book of Hebrews uses it. Right? That the way into the holy place is not yet disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing. The fact that it's not only is it open, it's open for business and we have access. That it's disclosed. That you and I know how to get in there. Alright? Because we're supposed to be in there all the time. We're supposed to be in there all day, every day. It is open for business and it is disclosed. Not the earthly replica, the heavenly reality. Once and for all. There are no repeated sacrifice. That's not necessary. As we said before, the the Levitical priesthood, they had their pinnacle of access when one guy, one day a year, got as close to God as any sinner could get. And then when he finished with the offering, he departed, went back out. Never once was the way to the true tabernacle ever opened through Levitical sacrifices. No one was ever caught up to the third heaven from the Holy of Holies on this earth. But Jesus opened the greater and more perfect tabernacle once for all. Open for business. No repeated sacrifice is ever necessary. Continuous access for the Melchizedek priesthood is now provided to any such priest at any time of need. All day, every day we can stand right there before the God of glory. Continuous access for the Melchizedek priesthood is now provided to any such priest at any time of need. You don't have to wait till the Day of of, uh, Atonement. You don't have to ask a priest to bring your offering on your behalf. You don't have to have a representative stand before God with uh, the name of your tribe inscribed upon his uh, his uh, stones on his ephod. You are a Melchizedek priest. You go on in there. You stand before the Father. That's your access. That's my access in Christ. So we do have continuous access in this Melchizedek priesthood. And this is a blessing. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, right? not one that passed through the earthly veil, came back, has to do it again next year. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. What a difference. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Our confession. We're part of a body. We're part of a priesthood. Jesus is the apostle and high priest of our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. That's why he had to suffer. That's why he had a three and a half year ministry. That's why he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. This was the mechanism that the father employed to cause him to identify with us. Remember with Aaron, he had no problem identifying with the people because he too was a sinner. (laughs) So Aaron, he could show up and say, okay, Lord, I'm a sinner. And he would bring a sacrifice for himself and they would bring a sacrifice for the people. And Aaron identified with the sinners because he was a sinner. Jesus, of course, was not a sinner. And so he had to identify with the people. And this is what The Father did in bringing him through these sufferings, through these temptations, through this weakness. He emptied himself and he walked our walk, and he now can sympathize. One who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near. All of us. See, not just a high priest by himself, with uh, non high priest priests out there in the first compartment, with Levites out there in the courtyard with uh, non-Levite Jews outside of the courtyard, with Gentiles nowhere in sight. We have access as a priesthood, all of us collectively, corporately drawing near. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. And I love this. To me, this is, this is a thrill. There's no limit. There's no, I mean, what are the dimensions of the holy place? You know, is it a 20 foot by 20 foot square? I mean, really, the, the most holy place was kind of small. You couldn't pack a whole lot of people in there anyway. <laughs> One of the pastors yesterday was telling a story of how he went to India. And uh, during his missionary work in India, he was got on a bus. And in this country, we're accustomed to buses with uh, seating capacities. In other words, uh, there's 30 seats. On the bus, you expect 30 seats on the seats. Maybe standing room in the aisles, maybe, you know. Man, what he described was incredible. We're talking a bus designed for 30 that's got 75 people on it. We're talking about packing it in, packing it in. And 30 seats is more than 30 people because you got people sitting on your lap on those seats. Everybody's got somebody on their lap. And maybe they've got somebody on their lap. Anyway, he was describing the whole thing, very embarrassed, very uncomfortable. very. He didn't know the woman who sat on his lap, and uh, he was saying, hmm, okay, this is, this is ministry. All right. But think about how many people can stand in the most holy place. All of us. <laughs> all of us. It's heavenly, it's extra-dimensional, it's spiritual anyway. We're all there. And the, and the Father's never, there's not a, a wait in line, sorry, busy signal, try again later. We all have access simultaneously to God the Father in this marvelous priesthood we have in Christ. So let us draw near collectively together with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. Well, what time is that? Yes, that's right. Anytime, every time, all the time. It's not a Levitical schedule, it's not a liturgical schedule, it's not, a, um, it's not on a fixed calendar whereby you've got Pentecost in the spring and, and uh, trumpets in the fall. It's not whereby you've got uh, different scheduling conflicts in different ways. It's, uh, it's interesting how they have, I mean with us it's all day every day day after day as long as it's called today. We have a, a priesthood access at any time day or night around the clock, wherever we may be around the world, here we are. And uh, that, that's extraordinary. And it's such a contrast with what they had when, uh, when that woman of the well was asking Jesus, is it our mountain or your mountain? Is it Shechem or is it Zion? You know, where, how do we approach God? And Jesus says, hey, an hour is coming and now is. When neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem Okay? Because true worshipers worship in spirit and in truth. And we have a, there was a unveiling of the church, you know, a pending whereby you and I function in a Melchizedek priesthood where it doesn't matter where we are. In Texas or Ukraine or Philippines or Uganda or wherever. We have access to that throne of grace to help in time of need. And I don't have to wait until the fall for a day of atonement. I've got a time of need right now. I'm going to go to the throne of grace right now. And that's the provision there. Chapter 10, Verses 19 through 22. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. So who does that leave out? Who does that exclude? Is it only a certain kind of Christian that has this kind of access? No, it's everybody. Every born-again believer in Jesus Christ. He says, therefore, brethren. That's 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 uh, universal. That's the totality of the body of Christ in the church age. We, all of us, nobody excluded, have confidence to enter the holy place. All of us. By the blood of Jesus. Who who does that not apply to? If you're saved, the blood of Jesus cleanses you. If you're saved, that's that's the blood that uh, ushered you into this priesthood. We have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. By a new and living way. This living sacrifice. You have to be a a Melchizedek priest to be living the living sacrifice and to bring the living sacrifices. This new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. So who does that... That's everybody. I don't care if you were saved in... uh, Let's see. Probably the 1950s maybe is the longest I've seen in this room presently at the moment. You were saved in the 1950s, or maybe you saved in the 1940s, I don't know. Or you were saved this morning, or anywhere else in between. You're bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. You have confidence to enter the holy place. The new and living way is for you. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, this is the house we are, the house of God. Let us draw near with a sincere heart. In full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean. Remember, animal ritual only cleansed the body. Animal ritual can only cleanse the external for the external observance. We have our conscience cleansed. Having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We have cleansing ourselves of all defilements of flesh and spirit. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for He who promised is faithful. We have access. We're in good standing, see? And so we have the the privilege, the access. Because he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. We have a mutual reciprocal thing. It's not a private thing. It's not I'm all in there by myself. We are interacting one with another. I'm encouraging you, you're encouraging me. I'm stimulating you, you're stimulating me to love and good deeds. You can't do that if you're a hermit. can't do that by yourself. Uh, The Levitical priesthood, one guy went in there all by himself. (laughs) Well, what kind of stimulation happens there? If you're in there all by yourself. But we're in there collectively. We're in there together. Poking one another, prodding one another, stimulating one another, encouraging one another. To love and good deeds and not forsaking rapture doctrine as is the habit of some but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near the best thing we can do for one another in our priesthood is to remind one another that today is the day the trumpet can sound today is the day can you endure one more day can you endure part of a day can you endure one more hour the trumpet's going to sound any moment now And not to lose heart, not to fall short, not to walk away from the truth not to abandon your gift, ministry and effect, not to walk away from your calling but to stay faithful in your calling. Because today is the day of the Lord. Today is the day that the Lord Himself will descend with a shout with the voice of the archangel. Today is the day. Do you believe today is the day the rapture is going to happen? Okay. It could happen. Since I believe it could happen today, I believe it will happen today. I expect it will. And then if it doesn't, tomorrow I'll expect the same thing. Actually, before tomorrow. If it doesn't happen today, I expect it'll happen while I'm sleeping tonight. I don't expect to wake up in the morning because I'm expecting a trumpet. And if it doesn't happen while I'm sleeping tonight, if I happen to wake up in the morning on earth, okay, well then tomorrow I will also expect tomorrow is when I'm going to be face to face with Jesus Christ, standing at the Bema seat with full reward. That's the mindset. That's the mentality. And if you keep that as your daily mentality, then you've got a goad in your hand, that sharp pointed stick, the oxuno goad, whereby you can stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Because this is the ox goad how to uh, accelerate your ox cart, how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Not forsaking rapture doctrine, the episynagoge of the church, as is the habit of some but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Maybe you've got a sister or a brother who doesn't see the day drawing near. They don't see the day drawing near because they never think about it. They never even dwell on those kind of promises. In fact, they rarely dwell on any kind of promises. They're not really living in the Word. So what's your, what's your opportunity then in, in the priesthood? Grab that sharp stick, <laughs> okay? And uh, goad them. Hey, you know what? Been in the Word lately? What scriptures were you in this morning? What, uh, you know, and just start goading in, in the, the discipleship activity we talked about last hour and uh, stimulate one another to love and good deeds. So this is what we have. It is open. The way into the holy place is opened. And the earthly tabernacle was a picture of it, but the earthly tabernacle never got anybody in there. The death of Christ got all of us in there. You see the difference? That's what this chapter is telling us. He went to heaven And He cleansed it so that now a sanctified people can stand in a sanctified heavenly temple. There's a reason why they had to cleanse the altar before they cleansed the Levitical priesthood. Why they had to cleanse the altar first and then the priesthood. Jesus has to cleanse the heavenly temple and provides for a cleansed priesthood to function in there. That's the church age. Then Verses 11 and 12. All right, so when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, notice he doesn't appear as a high priest of the good things that already did come. He did not appear as a high priest of a reformed Levitical priesthood that's already in effect. He's not He's not ever even going to be a Levitical priest in, uh, in the reformed form or any other kind. He's a Melchizedek priest. All right. He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, as to say not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves. There's no goat or calf or anything in the Levitical offering system that it would have ever put him in the holy of holies in the heavenly places. Not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. Through his own blood. The spiritual death work assignment that he accomplished on the cross. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. He entered it, He opened it, He disclosed it once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. All right. so this is what He did, once and for all. Not with goat blood, with His own blood. Not uh, with the expectation that He has to come back out and do it again next year. He never has to do it ever again. Once He opened it, it's eternally open. Once He cleansed it, it's eternally cleansed. It is not a repeated sacrifice. It is a hapax, a once and for all sacrifice. Having obtained eternal redemption. Levitical offerings never gave eternal redemption. They gave annual atonement and had to be redone the next year. For if the blood of goats and bulls, this is an if statement that's true, If the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh. In other words, if the animal ritual was useful in bodily sanctification, if animal ritual was useful and valid, and it was, you know, they followed the heifer sprinkling, they followed the goats, they followed all the procedures, and Aaron survived the holy of holies. Aaron survived standing before the Shekinah glory of God the Father in the Holy of Holies. He passed through the veil and he stood there and he was not struck dead. So it it was useful. It, uh, It was valid. If the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled it sanctified Aaron for the cleansing of the flesh how much more? How much more with the blood of Christ? And this is the contrast. How much more with the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God. This is what He did. This was His priestly sacrifice on the cross. Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You see, when when Jesus appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he was standing there alone having accomplished the work, but he was the firstborn of many brethren. He was cleansing, the, cleansing the, the heavenly temple, opening the heavenly temple, preparing the way. He went in as a forerunner. Remember that? He went in as a forerunner. What does that tell you? There are innumerable afterrunners coming. The forerunner leads the way but all those afterrunners are coming right after him. The body of Christ stands before the Father. And we're cleansed by the blood of Christ. And we can survive standing, spiritually standing before the Father in the heavenly places in Christ. How can sinners approach the Holy God? This way. He makes us to be righteous. He takes away our sin. He imputes His righteousness to our account. He cleanses the heavenly temple and then He cleanses us and He brings us within the veil. He brings us to the Father. This is how Sinners can stand before the holy God. Sinners saved by grace, cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. So through the blood of the Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. All right, here's the key. It's not just getting there. (laughs) Once you're in there, what do you do? Right? Right? You know, don't be like the dog chasing the car and then what's he going to do if he catches the thing? You you know, chasing the car, chasing the car. And you wonder, okay, you caught it, now what? What do you do? So you're a sinner, you're standing, you're you're forgiven, you're cleansed, you're standing in the presence of God, then what? You see, it's not just simply getting there. It's not just simply, ta-da, here I am. And I'm not dead yet. (laughs) Oh, wow. Wow. I'm a sinner. I'm a forgiven sinner. I'm standing in the presence of God. Now what? I'm glad you asked. To serve the living God. To serve the living God. There's service that has to happen in there. There's a work of service that has to happen in there. What is that service? What is uh, what is what are the living sacrifices that we bring? Because we're done. We're not in the death business anymore. The death is done. Right? We're now living sacrifices. We're serving the living God. So, this is what we have to deal with here. The um, animal ritual provided physical, shadow, momentary sanctification. Animal ritual provided a physical, shadow, momentary sanctification. It was good, it was useful it sanctified for the flesh. It allowed Aaron and his flesh to stand in the earthly holy place. It was a provision, but it was a physical provision. It was a shadow provision. It was a momentary provision. He was sanctified in the flesh only, not, not in conscience. And uh, he could accomplish the earthly ritual of the Day of Atonement and then come back out again and he was good for another year. If he was still alive, he could do it next year, or his son would do it next year. That's what animal ritual provided. The blood of Christ provides spiritual, substantial, eternal sanctification. Defilements of flesh and spirit are cleansed by the blood of Christ. Not just our bodies, but our conscience. The blood of Christ provides spiritual, substantial, or substance, eternal sanctification. And we're not just physically walking into an earthly holy place. In fact, we're not physically walking anywhere. We're spiritually entering the holy place made without hands, not of this creation. The holy place uh, in God's own presence. We're suited to do this because we also are, our new, our new nature in Christ is not of this creation. We are a new creation. So we have spiritual, substantial, eternal sanctification. And because we have spiritual, substantial, eternal sanctification, I'm not going to have time to read all these for you. Hebrews 9, Acts 15, Titus 2, Hebrews 10. Because we have this sanctification, because we are set apart, sanctified, suited for this kind of worship, we can do the worship. We're supposed to do the worship. The living God takes no pleasure in dead works but is well served by the bride of Christ and her living sacrifices. So here's a clue. We're going to be in these verses next week. We're going to look at Acts 15, Titus 2, Hebrews 10. We're going to see how the blood of Christ provides spiritual, substantial, and eternal sanctification. And how being sanctified, now we function in our priesthood with living sacrifices. Romans 12, living sacrifices. The bride of Christ and her living sacrifices stand before the Father. This is, our, uh, this is our priesthood. This is who we are in the church age. This is why Hebrews is such an amazing book for us to, to learn, to live, to embrace, to fully uh, engage in. Because these kind of believer priests that are fully on board in their priestly function um, it, it, I tell you, it changes your Christian walk. Father, I thank you for your truth. I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for this study. I thank you that when our Savior was raised from the dead, he didn't storm on into the earthly replica. He ascended to you. He cleansed the heavenly temple. And I thank you that we too function in the heavenly places in Christ. I thank you that we are a heavenly people, that we are eternally sanctified, that we function in the heavenly marketplace. We lay up treasures in the heavenly banking system. We make purchases. We worship. We serve you. We present our bodies before you as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is our spiritual service of worship. And so, Father, we're delighted to function on this way. I pray that we would understand this better and better. We've heard it today. We've learned it today. Let us keep learning it, chewing on it, living it out, considering how it is that we operate in the heavenly places. And operating in the heavenly places, then, how we Goad one another to love and good deeds. So, Father, open our minds to understand this, that we might live it out for the glory of Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you that by your grace, by your grace, Father, we are raised from death. We are raised from death to living. We walk in the newness of life. This is a privilege and blessing for the church age, and I just give you the praise and glory. We're going to sing about it now, Father. I just thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.